0: I'm Laura Lee Siemens, and today we're going to be talking about abortion. All right, last week I said that today we were going to be answering mailbag questions, but I'm gonna end up holding that off for one more week. This week, we're gonna be talking about abortion. Lifers are basically rocking it right now and delivering state after state with laws restricting abortions or ending them completely. Everyone is going crazy. Apparently, the ability to kill your offspring is something a lot of people want. However, there are also a lot of people who are pro-life. It's basically a 50-50 thing in the States. And once you start talking about third trimester abortions, most Americans are actually against that. Here in Canada, a lot of people don't know that we have abortion legal for any reason at any point in the pregnancy. So if you want to, say, have a boy, you can get pregnant as often as you want. Care for the child and then, after the ultrasound reveals it's a girl, have her terminated and then try again. Also, by the time the ultrasound can tell it's a girl, the baby has all its organs and just needs time to grow. This, of course, would all be paid for by our tax dollars. And if you don't think sex-selective abortions are a thing, they are. Even the CBC has covered this as a perhaps problem that needs to be addressed. Now, one of the great things that I have seen lately is that a lot of closet pro-lifers are coming out and speaking. Even in Canada, I see a shift, maybe even an awakening in our churches. So today I'm going to break down all of the arguments for you. All right, there's four types of people in this debate. One, the pro-lifer who wants to speak for life, but isn't really sure how to do that. Two, the person who isn't sure where they stand but wants to listen to the pro-life argument and truly wants to have a conversation. Three, the militant person who will not listen and comes into the conversation angry and fighting. And four, the pro-life person who is prepared and is ready to stand for life and truth. Hopefully by the end of this you will feel like number four. If you're number two and you don't know where you stand, or if you are pro-abortion but you're willing to listen to the other side, let me just start by saying thank you. I always enjoy having conversations with people who disagree with me, but they're willing to truly listen to what I have to say with an open mind. This is really the only way we can move forward on this topic at all. So I'm going to answer the questions I get asked or the statements thrown at me when I tell people I'm pro-life. I'm going to start by recommending a book by Stephanie Gray, and I'm going to have that in the show notes, so please take a look. Next, I want to say, go to my website, lauraleesiemens.com, for lots of resources. Under video, you're going to find a series called The Abortion Debate that has lots of videos that answer different questions. Also on the website, under the link shop, you will see pro-life resources, so please check those out. All right, first we need to know how abortion became legal in Canada versus the States. I've done videos and podcasts on these topics already, and I'm going to put links to those in the description. But to sum it up, both the United States and Canada took this to the Supreme Court, However, in Canada, the law that was overturned was a law that said abortion was against the law, except in the case where the mother's health was at risk. The law stated that a woman had to have basically a panel of doctors say that her health was at risk. Now, there was no definition of mother's health. So some women were getting abortions because having a baby might make them feel sad, Other mothers could not get abortions, so the Supreme Court struck it down, struck down the law, and said the law needed to be rewritten. The law was rewritten to say the same thing, except without needing to see these panels. The pro-abortion politicians would not vote for the bill because it was still saying abortion was illegal, except in the case of the mother's health. But the pro-life politicians also didn't sign the bill because they thought that health was not defined, we would end up in the same place again. The bill did make it to the Senate, but it failed in the Senate. No one bothered to try again, so that left us with no law at all, making us one of the three countries that allows abortion at any stage of the pregnancy for any reason at all. North Korea, China, and Canada. Nice. So before we jump into the arguments that I hear, we need to know what abortion is. So I'm going to be playing a clip, and this is a pretty long clip, and I'm also gonna be putting the description for it in the show notes so you can watch it again, watch it as a video if you want. But this is an actual abortion doctor describing how abortion works. So this isn't propaganda, you're listening to an abortion doctor.
1: My name is Dr. Anthony Levitino. I'm a practicing obstetrician gynecologist, and I performed over 1,200 abortions. First, I'm going to describe a first trimester medical abortion. This is a procedure in which the mother swallows pills in order to terminate her baby, and it is performed up to the ninth week of pregnancy. The procedure involves two steps. Step one, at the abortion clinic or doctor's office, the woman takes pills which contain mifepristone, also called RU46. RU46 blocks the action of a hormone called progesterone. Progesterone is naturally produced in the mother's body to stabilize the lining of the uterus. When RU46 blocks progesterone, the lining of the mother's uterus breaks down, cutting off blood and nourishment to the baby, who then dies inside the mother's womb. It is important to note that even after it has been taken, it is possible to reverse the effects of RU46 and save the baby if progesterone is administered. The sooner, the better. Step 2. 24 to 48 hours after taking RU-46, the woman takes misoprostol, also called Cytotec, that is administered either orally or vaginally. RU-46 and misoprostol together cause severe cramping, contractions, and often heavy bleeding to force the dead baby out of the woman's uterus. The process can be very intense and painful, and the bleeding and contractions can last from a few hours to several days. While she could lose her baby anytime and anywhere during this process, the woman will often sit on a toilet as she prepares to expel the child, which she will then flush. She may even see her dead baby within the pregnancy sac. At nine weeks, for example, the baby will be almost an inch long, and if she looks carefully, she might be able to count the fingers and toes. After she has disposed of her baby, the woman may have bleeding and spotting for several weeks. Bleeding lasts, on average, 9 to 16 days. 8% of women bleed more than 30 days, and 1% require hospitalization because of heavy bleeding. RU46 is only FDA approved for the first 7 weeks of pregnancy. While RU46 can be used off-label up to 9 weeks, the failure rate increases as the pregnancy progresses. At 7 weeks, it has a 5% failure rate. At 8 weeks, an 8% failure rate, and at 9 weeks, a 10% failure rate. If failure occurs, she will usually be offered a surgical abortion. For the mother, medical abortion often causes abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, headache, and heavy bleeding. Maternal deaths have occurred most frequently due to infection and undiagnosed ectopic pregnancy. First trimester surgical abortion called suction DNC, dilatation and curatage. This is the most frequently performed abortion and is used typically from five to 13 weeks of pregnancy. After administering anesthesia, the abortionist uses a speculum like this. This is placed inside the vagina and opened using this screw on the side allowing the abortionist to see the cervix, the entrance to the uterus. The cervix acts as a gate that stays closed for the duration of pregnancy, protecting the baby until it is ready for birth. The abortionist uses a series of metal rods called dilators, like these, which increase in thickness and inserts them into the cervix to dilate it, gaining access to the inside of the uterus where the baby resides. The baby has a heartbeat, fingers, toes, arms, and legs, but its bones are still weak and fragile. The abortionist takes a suction catheter like this one. This is a 14 French suction catheter. It's clear plastic, about nine inches long, and it has a hole through the center. It is inserted through the cervix into the uterus. The suction machine is then turned on with a force 10 to 20 times more powerful than your household vacuum cleaner. The baby is rapidly torn apart by the force of the suction and squeeze through this tubing down into the suction machine, followed by the placenta. Though the uterus is mostly emptied at this point, one of the risks of a suction DNC is incomplete abortion. Essentially, pieces of the baby or placenta left behind. This can lead to infection or bleeding. In an attempt to prevent this, the abortionist uses a curette to scrape a lining of the uterus. The curette is basically a long-handled curved blade. Once the uterus is empty, the specimen is removed and the abortion is complete. The risks of suction DNC include perforation or laceration of the uterus or cervix, potentially damaging intestine, bladder, and nearby blood vessels, hemorrhage, infection, and in rare instances, even death. Future pregnancies are also at a greater risk for loss or premature delivery due to abortion-related trauma and injury to the cervix. Second trimester surgical abortion called dilatation and evacuation, or DNE. A D&E is performed between 13 and 24 weeks of pregnancy. After administering anesthesia, the abortionist uses a weighted speculum, like this one, that opens the vagina widely. Because second trimester babies are so large, this greater access facilitates a late term abortion. Late term abortion requires that the cervix be prepared 24 to 48 hours in advance with laminaria. Laminaria is a type of sterilized seaweed that absorbs water over 8 to 12 hours and swells to several times its original diameter. Once removed, metal dilators can be used to further open the cervix as needed. Once the cervix has been stretched open, the suction tube is placed inside. A baby at 20 weeks gestation is as big as the length of my hand, from head to rump, not counting the legs. The suction machine is turned on, and pale yellow amniotic fluid surrounding the baby is suctioned out through the catheters. But babies this big, they don't fit through catheters this size. The baby's bones and skull are too strong to be torn apart by suction alone. This is a sulfur clamp. A sulfur clamp is made of stainless steel. It's about 13 inches long. The business end is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide, and there are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. The abortionist uses this clamp to grasp an arm or a leg. Once he has a firm grip, the abortionist pulls hard in order to tear the limb from the baby's body. One by one, the rest of the limbs are removed, along with the intestines, the spine, and the heart and lungs. Usually the most difficult part of the procedure is extracting the baby's head, which is about the size of a large plum at 20 weeks. The head is grasped and crushed. The abortionist knows he has crushed the skull when a white substance comes out of the cervix. This was the baby's brains. The abortionist then removes skull pieces. He removes the placenta and any leftover parts of the baby with a curette, scraping the lining of the uterus for any remaining tissue. The abortionist then collects the baby parts and reassembles them to make sure that there are two arms, two legs, and all the pieces. Once all the parts have been accounted for, the abortion is complete. For the woman... This procedure carries a significant risk of major complications, including perforation or laceration of the uterus or cervix, with possible damage to the bowel, bladder, and other maternal organs. Infection and hemorrhage can also occur, which can even lead to death. Future pregnancies are also at greater risk for loss or premature delivery due to abortion-related trauma and injury to the cervix. Finally, I'm going to describe a third trimester-induced abortion, which is performed at 25 weeks to term. At this point, the baby is almost fully developed and viable, meaning he or she could survive outside the womb if the mother were to go into labor prematurely. Because the baby is so large and developed, this procedure takes three or four days to complete. On day one, the abortionist uses a large needle to inject a drug called digoxin. Digoxin is generally used to treat heart problems. But a high enough dosage of digoxin will cause fatal cardiac arrest the abortionist inserts the needle with the digoxin through the woman's abdomen or through her vagina and into the baby targeting either the head torso or heart the baby will feel it babies at this stage feel pain when the needle pierces the baby's body and the digoxin takes effect the life of the baby will end The abortionist then inserts multiple sticks of seaweed called laminaria into the woman's cervix. They will slowly open up the cervix for delivery of a stillborn baby. While the woman waits for the laminaria to dilate her cervix, she carries her dead baby inside of her for two to three days. On day two, the abortionist replaces the laminaria and may perform a second ultrasound to ensure the baby is dead. If the child is still alive, he administers another lethal dose of digoxin. The woman then goes back to where she is staying while her cervix continues to dilate. If she goes into labor and is unable to make it to the clinic in time, she will give birth at home or in a hotel. In this case, she may be advised to deliver her baby into a bathroom toilet. The abortionist then comes to remove the baby and clean up. If she can make it to the clinic, she will do so during her severest contractions and deliver her dead son or daughter. If the baby does not come out whole, then the procedure becomes a D&E, a dilation and evacuation, and the abortionist uses clamps and forceps to dismember the baby piece by piece. Once the placenta and all the body parts have been removed, the abortion is complete. Late-term abortions have a high risk of hemorrhage as well as a risk of maternal death. Future pregnancies are also at a greater risk for loss or premature delivery due to abortion-related trauma and injury to the cervix. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm Dr. Anthony Levitino, and in the early part of my career as an OBGYN, I performed over 1,200 abortions.
0: All right, so I think it's important that we know what an abortion is before we jump into all of the discussions here, but I'm going to go through now and I'm going to answer questions that you will probably hear if you're pro-life or things that maybe you have asked if you're pro-choice. So the first one I get is the statement, you're just anti-choice. So that's one of my biggest pet peeves is when people say that I'm anti-choice. If you have listened to any of this podcast before, uh, you will know I lean really heavily towards libertarianism. I'm a firm believer in limited government. I want us to have more choices actually than we currently do. And you'll notice with this argument, like many other arguments, the abortion advocate will try and change the topic. Uh, This is called a red herring argument, so they would rather talk about women's rights or about freedom to make choices than talk about the actual topic, which is abortion. But for this argument, let's go ahead, follow the red herring, and we'll talk about choices. So I like chocolate, but one of my daughters does not like chocolate. In fact, her favorite ice cream is vanilla with no toppings. So to me, that's like ice cream where you just forgot to add the flavor. What if I said to my daughter, you have to have chocolate ice cream because that's my favorite. You're not allowed to choose vanilla ice cream. Well, that would make me kind of a terrible mom and also someone who is not allowing her daughter to just make choices for herself. But now imagine my kids are having a party at our house and it's summertime. I brought out all the flavors of ice cream for the kids. We're gonna have an ice cream sundae bar but one of the kids puts rat poisoning on the vanilla ice cream. Now I would hope you would all agree with me when I said, you can't serve that vanilla ice cream to your guests, you know, the one with rat poisoning on it. That's a choice you don't get to make. You see the argument isn't, can women make their own choices? The argument is what particular choice are we talking about? There's lots of things both women and men can't do with their bodies rape assault drinking and driving stealing those are all things we do with our bodies and all choices we're not allowed to make in the case of ice cream laced with poison the choice would involve killing another being another human being and that's a choice we shouldn't be allowed to make however i am actually very pro choice here's some choices i think we should be allowed to make for ourselves especially moms. Um, Breastfeeding versus bottle feeding or sleep, co-sleep with your baby or put your baby in a crib. There's even controversial ones like vaccinate or non-vaccinate. I think we should actually be allowed to choose. Do we stay home with our children or do we go to work and have our children in daycare? Uh, Should we have our kids in public school or private school or homeschool? Are we going to be a free-range parent or a helicopter parent? We should even be allowed to have a gun in our home if we want, or have a gun-free zone. Each of these topics are ones I actually feel very strongly about. I have very strong opinions on each of these. And they're topics I have made choices for my family. However, I believe just as strongly that you should be allowed to make choices that are different from me even if I believe that is a wrong choice. However, I draw the line at killing another human being. That's a choice I don't think you should legally be allowed to do. So I'm not anti-choice. In fact, I'm probably more pro-choice than most people who support abortion. I'm just anti the choice of killing tiny humans. All right, the next one. It's just a fetus. This really is the main argument. Who or what are we killing during an abortion? So what people will say is, it's just a fetus. Well, the question is, a fetus what? You see, you can have a fetus elephant, a fetus dog, a fetus cat, a fetus dolphin, or a fetus human. Now, an elephant, dog, cat, dolphin, human, these are all different species but they are all still fetuses. You see, a fetus is not a species, it's a stage of development. Just for a minute, think about your grandma. Picture her in your mind. Now, would we say that's not a human, that's an elderly? Obviously not, but your grandma was once a young adult and before that she was a teenager, before that she was a child, before that she was a baby, and before that she was a fetus. So the question we have to answer is not, is it a fetus or a human, because it's both. The question we have to answer is, is it a human life? Now imagine for a second your job is crushing cars. You get to pull the lever and watch as vehicles are crushed into just a little block of metal. It looks like actually a pretty fun job. Now, if someone came to you and said there might be a human alive inside one of those cars, maybe, we're not sure. But you say well if you're not sure if there's a human in the car then we can go ahead and crush it i hope you wouldn't say that if there's even a question about whether or not an abortion is killing a human being that is alive and well shouldn't we take the time to answer that question because if it is a human being that is alive and well and we are killing it we're doing that a hundred thousand times a year just in canada 400 million times worldwide 300 times a day this is murder on a mass scale so this question has to be answered so let's look at the definition human life well human hopefully we all understand that two humans make another human we could agree on that right science still says that right so if a human is pregnant it's a human inside so the next question is life An orgismic state characterized by the capacity of growth, reaction to stimuli, and reproduction. So a human that is growing, reacting to its surroundings, and will be capable of reproduction is a human life. So when does this human life begin? Well, people actually used to believe in something called spontaneous generation. Then the law of biogenesis proved that wrong. What does that mean? It means people used to believe that flies just poofed into existence. But then science proved that life produces other life. So when did your life begin? Well, there's three options. Before fertilization, at fertilization, or after fertilization. So let's look at before fertilization. Is an egg capable of growing, reacting to stimuli, or reproducing? Nope, doesn't matter how long you leave an egg, it will not grow, and it will not be able to reproduce itself. What about sperm? No, nope, it's also cannot all on its own grow or reproduce itself. So life can't begin before fertilization. Let's look at after fertilization. You're listening to this podcast now. Did you just poof into existence? No, science has proved that's not true. So you were once a child and before that you were a baby, before that you were a fetus, before that you were an embryo, before that you were a zygote. At no point did you poof into existence at each of these stages, you were growing, reacting to stimuli, and without adding anything, you eventually became capable of reproducing. At no point in any of these stages did life suddenly begin. So life can't begin after fertilization, and that means that life can only begin at fertilization. And when you were a tiny zygote, your DNA was present. Your very own specific, one-of-a-kind DNA. Your blueprint of who you are. You are good at sports, or are you maybe a klutz? Are you a math genius? What color are your eyes, your hair, how tall are you? All of this is your DNA, and it didn't exist before fertilization, it happened at fertilization. And if it is a human life with its own separate DNA, then should we not at the very least discuss the ethics of killing it? The next question I have is that it's not a person so this argument i hear and even though the fetus is human it's not a person and this is actually true in canada a fetus is not a person that is because human is a scientific term and person is a legal term let's look at some other times in history when the government decided that some humans were not persons in 1858 the virginia supreme court ruled that in the eyes of the law a slave is not a person This is the Dred Scott decision the Supreme Court said that Dred Scott, a human man standing before the court asking for the rights to be given to all persons, was not a person. Women were also not legally persons until 1929. Every woman was a human being but not a person. In September of 1936 in Germany, the Jews lost the legal right to personhood. That means that every single thing Hitler did to the Jews was actually legal in Germany before he did it. The Jews in Germany were scientifically human, but not legally person. And here in Canada, a fetus, while scientifically human is not a person. History has shown us that society is wrong when we don't give all humans the legal protection of personhood, and it's time for us to catch up with science. The next one is I want safe, legal, and rare abortions. So sometimes I hear this from people who are against abortion. They're against the idea of abortion, but they still say they agree that it needs to be legal. But they just want it to be safe, legal, and rare. So we're going to break that down. First, safe. Listen, there's no such thing as a safe abortion. Every successful abortion ends with a dead human being. So the idea of a safe abortion is a myth. But I know what they're referring to. The idea that women who can't get an abortion at a registered clinic will go to a back alley and get an abortion there. So just to be clear, no one was actually going into a back alley and getting an abortion. Hopefully you don't believe that was a literal thing because it's not, it never was. There was abortion clinics that were being run underground. I mean not literally underground, I mean secretly. So what happened when abortion stopped being illegal? The exact same doctors continue to do abortions in the exact same offices. Just now, the abortion was covered under our health care. So as far as abortions being safer now, more truthfully, they're just cheaper now. This same argument could be used today with female genital mutilation, which there are back alley fields female genital mutilation clinics taking place in Canada and in the United States. Once again, not literally in a back alley, they're being held in doctor's clinics, but they are secret clinics and they are more underground clinics. Does that mean that since it's happening already in Canada, we should make female genital mutilation legal so that it will be safer? And if we did do that, what would happen? The exact same clinics who are doing it now would still do it. They would just be allowed to advertise. So look, safe, not a thing. Legal, no, actually I don't want it to be legal. That's literally what I'm fighting against. All right, third, rare. Well, why exactly do you want abortions to be rare? It's either just a clump of cells and no different than getting your tonsils out, or it's killing a human being. If it's just a clump of cells, then why do you care? Why does it need to be rare? What difference does it make? Who cares how many clumps of cells people remove from their body? But if it's killing an innocent human being, then we don't want it to be rare, we want it to be non-existent. So the next time someone says they want an abortion to be safe, legal, and rare, ask them safe for who? And why do you want them to be rare? Another argument I hear sometimes is sometimes it's the morally right thing to do. And when I talk to pro-choice advocates, sometimes I hear the argument that abortion is in some circumstances the morally right thing to do. There are two circumstances that come up with this argument, poverty and disability. Let's break these down. Poverty, well, this is kind of personal for me. My birth mom was a single mom when she found out she was pregnant with me. She was no longer in a relationship with my birth dad. She was exactly the women people talk about when they give this example. So killing me would be the morally right choice. In fact, people did tell her that, but here I am doing perfectly fine. Imagine there's a couple happily married, both working young and on a career path. The woman finds out she's pregnant and she's excited. It's the perfect story. Then six months after the baby is born, her husband is killed in a tragic accident. The woman is unable to pay the mortgage payments and she loses her home. She needs her job and her career path is unustainable now with a baby. So it's not so perfect anymore. Would it be the morally right thing to do to kill a six month old? Here's the question we need to answer, is our financial situation a good measurement of our personhood rights? There's lots of cities in North America with a homeless problem. What if we solved our homeless problem by killing all the homeless people? Hopefully you're saying that would not be the morally right choice. In a crisis situation, we want to remove the crisis. We don't want to remove the person who's in the crisis. Killing a human being because they're going to be born into poverty is definitely not the morally right choice. The second situation is when it becomes clear the child is going to have a disability. This also kind of hits me personally. My mother was told my brother would be severely disabled and would have to be cared for his whole life. My mother was also told she would not survive the pregnancy. We're going to cover the health of the mother later on today. My mother is still living and my brother is an engineer. I also had a similar circumstance with my youngest daughter. It looked as if she might have disabilities if she survived the pregnancy. However, she was born on time and is now a competitive gymnast. I'm very aware this is not the outcome of every crisis pregnancy, but it is very interesting how many people have similar stories to this. I know people who have not had the happy ending, moms who found out their child would not live more than a few minutes after birth. after spending nine months pregnant, going through birth, and then losing your child after only spending a few minutes cuddling with them, this is the most heartbreaking situation. But what those moms will tell you is that they still grieve that child years after losing them. That little baby was a person and as a person had the right to live as long as possible. I know people who have considered themselves pro-life. And then faced with this situation, they thought about getting an abortion and I get that because I'm a mom. The thought of my children hurting or being in pain is the worst thought in the world. It's a nightmare that keeps all moms up at night. Every mom gets that. However, should our abilities be the measurement of our personhood? If you found out there was a gunman who's going to go into a school and was going to shoot up only the special ed classroom, would you stop that gunman? Why? Do the children in that special ed classroom have personhood rights? A piece of history many of us are not aware of takes place during the Nazi rule in Germany. Anyone with disabilities was was sent to special boarding schools by the government. People were unaware that their loved ones were not being cared for by the government, but were being used for scientific research and then killed. This is horrifying. Just because someone has a disability does not mean they lose their human rights. Today in Iceland, there are no people with Down syndrome, and this is not because they found a cure for Down syndrome, it's because they've killed all the people with Down syndrome. They just killed all of them before they were born. This is a very dangerous way of thinking. No, actually, it's not morally right to kill a human being because that human being has a disability. It was not morally right when the Nazis did it, and it was not morally right when Iceland did it. So no, killing a human being because they're poor, not okay. And killing a human being because they're disabled, not okay. The measurement of our personhood rights cannot be dependent on our financial situation or our abilities. Our personhood rights must depend on only one thing. Are you a human being? Every human being has human rights and should have legal personhood rights. All right, the next question I get is what about the mother's health? Now, with this topic, even most pro-life people will answer and they'll say they're okay with abortion if the mother's health is at risk. Even Ben Shapiro, who's one of the strongest advocates against abortion, has this stance. So first, let's start by defining what we mean by mother's health. So I'm not talking about mental health. I'm not talking about the mother might feel sad or be stressed by the pregnancy. I'm talking the mother might die or be severely disabled. And there are actually situations like this that happen frequently. There are times when the mother might not survive if she continues with the pregnancy. And in this situation, the pregnancy needs to end. But that doesn't mean you have to have an abortion. Now, this confuses people because when we say end the pregnancy, that's usually a polite way of saying abortion. Now, think back to the beginning of this podcast when we talked about the different ways abortion happens. Pretty horrific. None of those are necessary. If a pregnancy needs to end, the baby should be delivered alive and then everything should be done to keep the baby alive. The youngest so far to survive outside the womb is a 21 week old fetus. So any fetus 19 weeks and up should be tried to save. If the fetus is clearly too young to survive, it should be wrapped in a warm blanket and allowed to pass comfortably while being held and treated respectfully. Look, it's not like the doctor waves a magic wand over the mother and the pregnancy ends. The baby has to be delivered either way. So as far as the mother's health, having the baby come out in one piece seems safer. There's also no reason to kill the baby before delivering it. Now I have friends who have had to deliver early because of serious medical problems. And in every one of those cases, the babies were born alive and attempts were made to save them. Thankfully, in most of the cases the babies survived and after spending a lot of time in the NICU were able to go home. Some are in college now, one's in high school, two are in elementary school and one has been home for only a few months. In the cases where the babies did not survive, the parents still grieve the child that they lost. But they do know that everything was done to save them. Then there is the case of the atopic pregnancy. This is one case where people will point to where the treatment will end the life of the preborn child. An atopic pregnancy is when the child develops outside the uterus in the fallopian tubes. The only treatment for this is to remove the child and also usually part of the tubes. This is a tragic situation for both the mother and the child. In most cases the child is already dead before the atopic pregnancy is even found. Now here's an important note. The WebMD, the Mayo Clinic, and even Planned Parenthood do not label an atopic pregnancy as an abortion. So in the stats about abortion, these cases are not part of those stats. All right, the next one we have is what about rape? All right, so this is the question that I always get. What about the case of rape? And a lot of people will tell me they're pro-life except for in the case of rape. So let's start right off by saying rape is horrible and I actually don't think rapists are punished hard enough here in Canada. I would say one place we could all start to agree on is this, rape is bad and let's punish the rapist and actually let's make that punishment pretty severe. I think we can all start at a place there where we're agreeing. But, Would we ever consider giving the death penalty to a rapist? I mean, people say that a lot of times, but if you really thought about it, would you give the death penalty to a rapist? Would we say the crime of rape should be punishable with death? But why would we say the child of a rapist should be killed, but maybe not the rapist? When we hear that someone has been raped, we feel anger, we feel rage, we feel sadness. We want to do anything we can to bring the rapist to justice. And we also want to do anything we can to help the victim. We wish we could just take the pain away. When we hear that someone got pregnant through rape, we feel even more. We wish we could do something to take the pain away. The question is, would killing the child actually take the pain away? And would killing the child be the morally right thing to do? Does the value of a human life depend on how that life started? Let me tell you a true story. It's an abortionist named Dr. Wickland. So a woman and her husband had been trying for years to have a baby and they were unsuccessful. One night the woman was attacked and raped. She found out after the rape she was pregnant. The woman went to Dr. Wickland for an abortion. After the abortion, Dr. Wicklin was examining the remains of the tiny human that had just been killed. The doctor was horrified to realize the size of the embryo showed the embryo was older than they originally thought. The baby that had been killed was not the offspring of the rapist, but the offspring of the woman and her husband. When we hear the story, we're horrified. The doctor was horrified. But why? Why are we horrified? Why are are we saying suddenly the human life has value because of who the father was? Are we saying the value of a human life is based on who the parent is? Is one human born out of love to a mother and father who wants them and loves them more valuable than a human born out of violence to someone who doesn't want them? Isn't all human life equally valuable? I believe that all human life is valuable. Where you start out in life, who your parents are, how loved you are, these are not ways to determine the value of human life. If you started out in a situation where you were unloved and unwanted, you were not less valuable than the person who started out life loved and wanted. We are all valuable and each human life deserves to be protected and cherished. Another argument that I hear is it's okay to have an abortion, but only until it's viable because right now it's dependent on the mother. I attended a debate at a local university between an abortion doctor and a pro-life advocate. The main point the abortionist had was that a fetus can't be a person because it's dependent on the mother for survival. I believe this is actually a very dangerous argument, and I'm going to give you three reasons why. Reason number one Newborns are clearly still dependent. Peter Singer, who is a bioethics professor at Princeton University, actually uses this to say a child can be aborted after it's born if the child has a defect. This, by the way, is a person who's teaching future generation of doctors, so that's great. Secondly, not only are newborns dependent, the elderly are dependent. A video went viral this year of an elderly man being beaten and yelled at by a nurse in an old age home. People were horrified to see another person being treated this way. Just because the elderly are now dependent on other people does not mean they lose their personhood rights. And third, people with injuries, diseases, or disabilities are also dependent. I spent a lot of time in nursing homes over the last five years, and it's, ju- it's not just the elderly who are in nursing homes who need care. I've met men who are in their 40s who've been in accidents and have been disabled. There are people with diseases such as Parkinson's, MS, Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's, or Huntington's disease. All of these people are dependent on the staff there to feed them, clean them, and well, make sure they survive. In fact, these people are dependent on others and therefore they are considered vulnerable. And that doesn't mean we don't care if they're treated poorly. In fact, it's the opposite. Imagine with me for a minute. Imagine you see a woman slap a man across the face. Now, this man is a healthy, strong man. You would have a reaction to that. But if you saw a woman slap a man across the face who was suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease and was unable to defend himself, you would probably have a completely different reaction. That is because we know that being dependent doesn't mean you have less protection. It means you should have more protection. We actually consider these people vulnerable. In fact, in Canada, people who work with vulnerable persons have to go through a whole extra police check called the vulnerable sector search. When we hear that someone's been arrested for murder, our first reaction is to say, that person's evil. But if we find out the person they murdered was a baby or an elderly, or a person with a disability, we say, that person's kind of a monster. The argument that a fetus can't be a person because it's dependent, it's not only wrong, it's actually really dangerous. The next argument, which is kind of similar to that, is that I'm okay with abortion up until a certain point. I'm okay as long as the baby isn't conscious. I have yet to actually meet in person someone who thinks it's okay to have an abortion in like the last month of pregnancy. Now, there are people who believe that. In fact, there are people who want to advocate for abortion all the way up to age three years old, but normal, you know, non-psychopath people agree that the idea of killing a child who could easily survive outside the womb and who obviously feels pain, is kind of horrible. But if you're pro-abortion, then where would you draw the line? When is it okay? So when I have the conversation with people, the number one answer I get is abortion is okay until the fetus is conscious. So let's talk about that today. In 2016, a 20-year-old named Brock Allen Turner became a household name. He was instantly known for two things. One, being a great swimmer, and two, raping an unconscious girl. Brock found a girl who'd been drinking and had passed out. She was unconscious. Brock then took her clothes off and assaulted her. The world was outraged when he only received two years in prison and rightfully so. The woman didn't lose her rights when she was unconscious. Women's rights belong to human beings and those rights belong to you whether you are conscious or not. There are many cases of doctors who are found guilty of assaulting women when the women are under anesthetic and unconscious. The defense was never, well, since they were unconscious, they were not living human beings. In fact, we were more outraged by the fact that they were unconscious. But you might be saying, well, those women were conscious at that moment, and they might be conscious and they would be conscious again once the anesthetic wore off or they sobered up. Yes, that's true. If the women in these cases were left alone, they would soon no longer be unconscious and would be conscious. The same is true of the fetus. If we leave the fetus alone, it will be conscious. All right, so some people listening right now are probably freaking out because I can hear what they're saying. Are you comparing abortion to rape? How dare you? No, I'm not comparing abortion to rape. I'm asking the question, is conscious a good measurement for when we have human rights? I would never compare abortion to rape. One is clearly far worse. In one situation, the victim dies. All right. Those are questions that I would label as good questions. Once that people ask in good faith, the last five questions or statements are ones I label as not in good faith. This means the person doesn't actually want to discuss human rights issues, but rather wants to find a way to make you invalid. Not just your point invalid, but you. Or the argument goes into the absurd. So here I'm going to answer those questions. First, no uterus, no say on abortion. First of all, something is either right or something is wrong. The sex of the person giving the argument does not change that fact. Either abortion is killing a human being and therefore a human rights issue that needs to be addressed or it's no big deal. But the sex of the person stating this has nothing to do with whether the argument is valid or not. Also, it seems to me that they have no problem with men stating an opinion on abortion if the opinion is to say abortion is fine. In fact, I'm often targeted on Twitter by men who are for abortion and arguing with me about my pro-life stance. When that happens, I actually debate them on the topic that they introduce. I don't tell them if they don't have a uterus, they don't get an opinion. And as a side note, apparently you can compete in women's sports all the way to the Olympics without having a uterus. So maybe this argument needs to just be hung up. The next one, you don't care about the baby after it's born. You're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. First of all, let's address the obvious bad faith in this argument. No one who actually knows me would claim this. But people who know nothing about me have never met me and know only that I'm pro-life have assumed that I don't do anything to help people. If you're using this argument, just stop. Stop yourself and ask if you've even met the person you're speaking to. Personally, I've adopted two children. I have run clubs for foster and adoptive families. I've worked at camps for foster and adoptive families. I've also worked at camps for at-risk kids. I have run free sports camps in low-income housing, and I've run free homework clubs in low-income housing. I've made meals for refugees who are new to Canada. I've taken care of children so their parents could take cooking classes at a community center in the middle of low-income housing, and our family donates at least 10% of our income to charity. We've also opened our home to kids who need places to live. But even if I had not done any of that, the argument is still invalid. Imagine if the government decided it was going to take care of the homeless problem by killing all the homeless people. Would it be fair to say, you can't complain about this unless you're willing to let all the homeless people live in your house? No, you can actually be against killing homeless people and at the exact same time not invite them to live in your home. It's just a non-argument. The next one I have is you can't force your religion on me. This is another bad faith argument and I say it's bad faith argument because I never Never use the Bible or Christianity as a reason to be against abortion. So, when people say this to me, it's because they see other things I have posted and they know that I'm a Christian. What they're really saying is since you're a Christian, you can't have a say on this topic. But I will answer this question and pretend it was given in good faith. Let me be crystal clear I have no intentions of forcing my religion on anyone. First of all, Christianity can't be forced on people, it's not really how it works. Next, history and also present day Middle East shows that when you force any religion on people, two things happen. The people become less free and the religion becomes corrupt. It's basically not good for anyone. There are some things that are clearly sin according to the Bible. Sex outside of marriage, sin. However, if the government wanted to make a law saying sex outside of marriage is illegal, I would march in the streets with everyone else protesting against that. The Bible also tells women to dress modestly, but if the government tried to tell me what to wear or what not to wear, yeah, that's not going to turn out well. But there are other things that are sin according to the Bible, and also our government has laws about it. One of those things is stealing. If I caught someone shoplifting and told them to stop, no one would say, hey, you can't force your religion on me or if I saw someone killing their neighbor and I called 911, the operator's not gonna say, listen lady, you can't force your religion on people. That's because some things that Christianity teaches are concepts that Christians try to live by. And other things Christianity teaches, our society has seen as a good way to govern society. So no, nope, I'm not trying to force my religion on you. I am, however, gonna try and stop you from killing tiny human beings. The next one we have is the violinist argument. Now we're into absurd arguments. So if someone is using this argument, they have no intentions of finding the truth. They just want to argue. Still, here's my answer to that argument. First, here is the argument. Imagine you're walking along the road and you're suddenly kidnapped. You wake up in a hospital room and you're attached to a famous violinist. The violinist will die if you detach yourself. But don't worry, the violinist will be okay in just nine months, so it's just a short-term thing. Should the government be allowed to do this? If you hear this argument and your first reaction is to roll your eyes, yeah, I felt the same way. I mean, how many make-believe things have to happen in this crazy story for you to make this argument? Well, let's just put away the crazy violinist story. The argument is really about bodily autonomy. So what if we change that? What if we ask, can the government force you to give part of your lung away or part of your liver away if it'll keep another person alive? Let's imagine my kids are outside playing with a bunch of neighborhood kids. One of those neighbor kids comes to my house and asks me for food. I am not obligated to feed them. I can tell them they can go home for lunch and then they can come back and play after lunch. The government's not gonna come knocking on my door and say, hey, you have to feed this neighborhood child. However, if my child is hungry and I refuse to feed them, and I'm not talking, wait, supper's going to be ready in 15 minutes, I mean refuse to feed my children. Like, hey, I've been feeding you for five years now, I'm done, figure it out yourself. The government will come knocking on my door and I will go to prison for child neglect. That's because we understand there are some things that a parent needs to be responsible for and keeping the child alive is one of them. But even in that case, should the government be allowed to force you to give part of your liver to your child? Well, no, even though I would do that in a heartbeat and I would question anyone who would not do that for the child, the government shouldn't actually force people to do that. But your liver, your lungs, they're in your body for the purpose of keeping you alive. But my uterus is in my body for the purpose of keeping a different human being alive. All right, the next one I have is a five-year-old and the embryos in the fire argument. All right, so a fertility clinic is on fire and you rush in and you see a five-year-old girl, but she can't walk. You can either save the five-year-old girl or the case of embryos. What do you save? Well, to start, yeah, we would all save the five-year-old girl, but does that mean the embryos are no longer valuable. First, let's start by noticing the extreme callous in this argument. The person is assuming the embryos are easily discarded and no one cares. But imagine you are the couple that's been trying to conceive and those are your embryos that are supposed to be implanted in your body. Don't you think if a fertility clinic burned down and all the embryos were destroyed that would be kind of horrific and worth grieving over? secondly we're talking about abortion so in what circumstance does someone have to decide between killing my unborn baby or killing my five-year-old that's not a thing and if it is a thing like if someone is telling you abort your baby or i'm going to kill your five-year-old you need to get help like right away third we are as human beings drawn to save the person we can see if we ran into a building and there was a five-year-old girl that needed saving and next, in the next room there was 10 adults and I could only save one, I'm not stepping over the five-year-old girl to get to the 10 adults. I'm getting the kid that I can see. This is true also in killing. It's why so many pictures from Nazi Germany have the Jews standing facing away from the Nazi who's about to shoot them in the back of the head. This is why killing gangster style means a person kneels on the ground facing away from the shooter and a shot in the back of the head because even the worst among us don't want to look into the face of the person being killed. And that is why I use pictures of aborted babies when I talk to people. Look at what you are arguing for. Look at it. This is what you are saying you want to have more of. And this is why moms who have ultrasounds are less likely to abort. Because once we see the tiny human, we can't just let them die. Just like the little girl in the burning fertility clinic, we're going to do what we can to save them. Those are the arguments that I get most often when people find out that I'm pro-life. And like I said, you can go to my website, lauraleesiemens.com, click on videos and then click on the abortion debate. And you will see all of these arguments placed in individual videos. It is time, it's actually, God has given us this great opportunity right now where people want to talk about abortion. It's not a taboo subject anymore. In fact, I don't even have to bring the topic up to other people because people right now are bringing the topic up to me. Sometimes assuming because I'm a woman, I'm going to be pro-choice. But we have to be prepared for these arguments. It's time for us to stand up for life. America, American pro-lifers are doing an amazing job. Here in Canada, we need to wake up and we need to step it up. We need to stand for life. 100,000 a year are being murdered. What are we going to do about it? I'm going to be back next week. In the meantime, for more podcasts, videos, and blogs, check out lauraleesiemens.com.